Hi, everybody. I'm very grateful and happy to be here today and talk with you guys. And my goal for today's talk, uh, which, by the way, is the title of this message is Keeping and Bearing. I'll be talking from Genesis 4, verses 1 through 18. And my goal for this talk today is to leave you asking questions. You know, asking questions is something that is very important. And it's something that in the Spark community, it's celebrated and encouraged. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And particularly with, you think about how many different situations in the world where people have misunderstandings, we should be asking more questions. And the book of Genesis... You've heard it said, as we've been talking for the last few weeks about the book, you might have heard the word narrative or story tossed around. The book of Genesis is a narrative, and it raises as many questions as it answers. And I think that, for me, I read Genesis as a little kid. I can't even remember how young. And I remember I read it very earnestly. I read it in Sunday school. I had different people telling me things. And it confused me a lot. And the passage that we're going to talk about today particularly left me with some interesting questions. And I think those questions are okay. And I think it's important that we honor and acknowledge those questions because sometimes when we read the Bible, when we read stories, at times I think that we're looking to the narrative to answer things that maybe it's not intending to. The Genesis stories provide a functional explanation for why things are the way they are. To me, that's similar to an instruction manual like for an iPhone. You know, it it doesn't tell you exactly how the software is working, how the screen is working when you touch it. It just tells you to push a button, slide it to unlock. And that's in the same way these narrative stories in Genesis give us functional reasons and explanations for why things are the way they are and give us lessons that we can learn. And it's important to not get hung up on those questions that the text can't answer but to learn what lessons that the narrative is trying to convey to us. And so today we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. And this, again, like I said earlier, this is a story that, especially as we go along, there's a lot of questions that popped up in my head as a child. And we'll go through, I want to acknowledge some of those questions and really try to glean what's the lesson that we can learn from this. So Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And it's interesting, Abel's name, Havel, means breath or nothingness. And he really doesn't get to do much in this story. He's not around for very much in this story. He doesn't even get to speak. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor upon Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And there's a couple things here that strike me as interesting. We're really not given a good description of why God is not happy with Cain's offering. We're given small allusions. It could be the attitude that he had for what he gave. It could be that Abel brought the first, you know, the first fruits and that Cain didn't. But we don't see that. We can only infer. We also don't, we really don't have an idea 
you know, other than the fact that Cain is doing this, he obviously wants to please God. And I think here where it says at the end that Cain was very angry, the Hebrew word there is yichar. It's from the verb chara. And it actually means despondency or distress. So if anything, it's not so much that he's angry, he's more depressed. He's sad. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry or depressed? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I think it's interesting here, you know, in in Proverbs 3.12, it says the Lord disciplines those he loves. You know, God's response to Cain here, it's an affectionate discipline. It's also a warning. But Cain doesn't seem to take either of these to heart. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And see, it's interesting. In, again, there's not a lot of explanation for what's going on. We just know that Cain was despondent. He's warned by God. He then goes out and kills his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And this question itself betrays the answer. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Cain wanted to please God, but he went about doing it the wrong way. Now in Micah 6.6, 6, it says to do justice, to love mercy or loving kindness, the Hebrew words has said, and to walk humbly or wisely with God. Cain wants the favor of God, but he misunderstands the heart of God. And because of this, he destroys the image of God in his own brother. Now, right relationship with God without right relationship with your neighbor is impossible. And maybe this is why Jesus talks about in Matthew, where he says, You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now see, God's response to Cain, it's both merciful and just. It is harsh. It is punishment. He works the land. He's taking away from him his ability to work the land. But at the same time, he's sparing him from the full consequences. Later on in Genesis 9, 6, the blessing that God gives after the flood, he says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And earlier, again, it seemed that Cain didn't ask very many questions. And again, we don't know why. 
some of these things. We just know what he did. But now he asks questions, and perhaps because of this, he's afraid. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And this word here for mark, ought, it's often regarded as a stigma of infamy or some sort of like stigma or something negative. But it's really something more of a sign that the bear is under divine protection. And this verse 15 commentaries speak of that it has, a, in effect, a royal decree behind it. That the weight that this is, not, God is giving Cain both judgment, but at the same time, he's giving him protection. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the word Nod is actually a symbolic name that means wandering. And now this next part is where, as a kid, I got totally confused. Not that I wasn't confused before when Cain starts talking about, I'm afraid of people killing me when there's only supposed to be three people on the earth. But then it gets more. Cain made love to his wife. What wife? Is that his sister? Where did she come from? And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and to Erad was the father of Mehujel, and Mehujel was the father of Methuselah, and Methuselah was the father of Lamech. And if you keep going on, there's even more questions that come up later on in Lamech's story. But again, commentators will say that perhaps there are other stories that was assumed to be public knowledge that people had when they read this. But we don't know. And I think it's okay to say that stuff like this is somewhat confusing, but what's the lesson that we can learn from it? What's the lesson that we can learn from this story? And I think the most important thing that we see is Cain wanted to please God. He really did. But he misunderstood the, one of the primary desires of God, that he was, in fact, his brother's keeper. And all these things are important because it comes to the question of the reputation of God. And the reputation of God, you hear it talked a lot about here. It's one of the core values of Spark. And how we present the reputation of God is directly connected to how we perceive the heart and the character of God. The less that we understand the heart of God, the easier it is for us to misrepresent God. And this begs the question, how do we know what the heart of God is? How do we know what the will of God is? And that's why we're here. That's why we study. And one of the ways that we can answer that is to know the will of the Father. And there's a parable that I'm very fond of. It's in Luke 15. And I believe that it speaks directly to this question of the reputation of God. And about a year ago, actually, Daniel preached on this. And I'm just going to go through parts of it briefly. This parable, um, of it's often called the prodigal son. But even that, it, it, it's a little bit misleading in what it's actually talking about. 
Newer commentators will often call it the parable of the lost sons. Even that does a little bit of obscuring to some of the message. But this parable of the prodigal is part of a series of parables that's on the lost things. And Jesus in Luke is telling this to Pharisees and teachers who were complaining and murmuring against Jesus because he was welcoming and eating with sinners. In Luke 15, 11, then he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Which is, in effect, saying, Father, I wish you were dead. And shockingly, the father divided his property between them, his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, which is not something that most good Jewish kids want to do. As he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And as he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And none of that behavior is typical of a first century Jewish patriarch. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And this is where most people think the story ends, because we often call it the prodigal son. But there's one more. I want to think about for a moment, you know, the idea of this father who's behaving very much unlike a typical patriarch should be. And earlier, he he divided his property between his two sons, because his younger son, who basically told him, I wish you were dead, asked for it. Who does that? But then we find him in the story here, he still seems to be in charge. He still has authority. And it begs a question to me, how much resources and power does his father have to be able to behave in such a way? That question of maybe this is telling us the kingdom of God the way the resources work is a little bit different. That idea of in the kingdom, the resources are unlimited. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even say his brother, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, why is this parable important? Who's telling this parable? Jesus. This parable gives us a picture of what Jesus said the Father is like. This Father is merciful to a fault. He's righteous. He's just. But he's not fair. And now the older brother here, just like Cain, he doesn't want to be his brother's keeper. But unlike Cain, he actually has a good reason to be angry. You know, if when you think about and doing some of the research for this story, that talk of dividing the property, that's not just a simple thing of, oh, here's some money, take it and leave. It's a matter of going within the community, taking all the resources that the family had, dividing it evenly and selling it and converting it to cash. Everyone in this town knew what was going on. Everyone knew what had happened, and the the stigma and the shame of that. This guy has a reason to be angry. If anything, even the idea of it's weakening his inheritance as the eldest son, that his brother has taken off all this stuff, and now he comes back and he's welcomed into the family. He has good reason to be upset. And that's where, let's be honest, this picture is very difficult to accept. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers wanted to please God just the way that Cain did, but clearly they misunderstood God's character. They were literally faced with Jesus in front of them, flesh and blood, carrying out the will of God right in front of them, and they murmured and they complained. And it brings us to a real truth that we don't always want to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. We want people to get what we think they deserve. When it comes from something, it's easy to talk about forgiveness when it's somebody else, when it's something else, when it's something small, but when it's something that comes from us, when it's something that was done to us or that we've experienced or we've gone through, it's painful. And we don't want to think about them. We want to think about ourselves. I've heard it put this way, that we judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. We want justice for others when we perceive wrong and mercy for ourselves when, we're, when we do wrong. We judge other people by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. I love this quote here. It's from a guy named Brendan Bryan in The Hospitality of God. He writes, Can you cope with a God imagined by the Father in this parable? Can you cope with a God imagined by the Father in this parable? And I think if we're really honest and we really think about the times where we're... Remember, we talked 
a little while ago about the image of God. Pastor Daniel preached about that we're all created in the image and likeness of God. Everybody, all of humanity. And as Christians, we have that responsibility to work always to authentically bear the image of God, to represent the image of God, to represent Jesus in the world. But we don't always want to. It's hard. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we often have difficulty bearing the image of God because we can't cope with it. It's hard to think about this kind of grace that forgives so many wrongs where you've seen people hurt, you've felt loss, but we're told to forgive. We see at the heart of God is that we are our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. And it leads to a more difficult question to me. Can you bear the image of God? that the father in this parable portrays. Can you bear that image? We're all our brother and sister's keeper. All of humanity is created in the image and likeness of God. And all of humanity is our brother and sister, not just the people that we agree with. And this is what I see in the story of Cain and Abel. This is what I see here in this image of this parable that gives such a vivid picture of what the Father is like, told to us by Jesus. That it is our purpose to keep the image of God, that we are our brother and sister's keeper and that we're called to bear that image, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. And I want to leave us today, if I can get Kevin back up to play a song for reflection, I want to leave us with two questions. The first being, can you cope with the image of God imagined by this parable? Maybe you've never known God. Maybe you've never truly been able to comprehend for yourself that kind of lavish, redemptive love and forgiveness. Can you cope with that? Can you accept that? And then second, can you bear the image of God that this parable portrays? For everyone who's a follower of Christ, can we bear this image of the Father? Are we willing to bear this image that at times is practically unbearable? But yeah, we're called to it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for just your unimaginable love. And I pray that you would meet and challenge each of us, that you would help us to seek you and to ask more questions. In the name of Jesus.